I'll be reading from John 3, 7 to 21. <laughs> Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thank you, Rebecca. There are many, many things I love about God's word. At the top of that list would have to be the fact that when there are stories recorded of Jesus, they particularly don't speak in uh, generalities, but they speak in specifics, specific conversations that Jesus has. I'm not an expert in ancient history, but I would imagine There are few figures in ancient history that we have so many of their one-to-one conversations recorded like we do in in the life of Jesus. And John particularly records some of those, and that's actually part of what Rebecca read today, was a conversation that Jesus was having, one-to-one conversation that he was having with Nicodemus. And I think we can get some insight into these conversations, these very personal conversations that are given to us in Scripture. I think we can get some insight into these because, first of all, they they surely tell us that Jesus is a a real person. And we know that, but this kind of brings it home in a real human way. He is God. He's God the Son, and he's human, 100% human. But But I think the way these conversations work is they almost let us be there with Jesus as he's talking to an individual. And sometimes I imagine myself kind of as a third party listening, but other times it's almost as if I'm, I'm the one that has the same questions that are being asked of Jesus. And so it's helpful that we have these things as we come to God's word, I would imagine, in this audience today. In this audience today are at least two groups of people. I would think one group of us are people who have committed to Jesus Christ. So when we heard Rebecca read those words, you must be born again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's probably many of us in this room that go, that has happened. I I know that. I know that to be true. I believe in who Jesus is. And and so when you begin to dig deeper and deeper into John chapter 3, you may ask at the beginning, well, listen, I already believe that. Why, Why do I need to know more? Why do I need to understand more? I already believe it. I already am convinced. And yet I find going through John 3 in depth, 
It's almost like when you find a box in the attic of newspaper clippings and pictures and keepsakes from a, a family member, and they give you a glimpse into your story. And so, so granted, whatever happened, happened in the past, but whatever happened made you who you are and, and certainly gives you a vision toward the future when you understand who you are. So as we're reading John 3, you may say, Curtis, I already believe in Jesus Christ. Well, this is going to give you an understanding of exactly what was going on, even the moment you believe, pre- predating even that. But I would imagine there's another category, another category that probably would identify most with Nicodemus. And maybe you're in that category. That category of interested in Jesus, maybe even impressed by Jesus, but not yet fully entrusting yourself to him. Not yet fully convinced of everything. You're asking questions, much like Nicodemus asked questions. And if, it, if that is you, I would say, first of all, I have a, a ton of respect for honest questions. And I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, it really is an honor that even though you're not convinced, you, you would come today. You would come and you would listen and you would listen to what we're singing about, what we're praying for, and, and what we understand God's word to be. And what I prayed is that even as Nicodemus is asking questions and Jesus is teaching him pretty straightforward, some frank stuff, that maybe some light bulbs would go on for you that you would have eyes to see some things that maybe you've never seen before. I want to focus in, and Rebecca began reading in verse 7, where Jesus said, and kind of introduced this necessity of being born again. Jesus said, do not marvel in verse 7 that I said to you, you must be born again. And he speaks about the wind and not knowing where it comes or where it goes and how that is like the Spirit. And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus has just, and we looked at this last week, Jesus has just introduced a spiritual requirement. And requirement number one that Jesus introduces, spiritually speaking, is you must be born again. You must be born again. Jesus reiterates this. He repeats it a couple times. You must be born again. You've got to have new life. You can't do anything to affect that change. Only God can do this. But it's not going to be a matter of making some small improvements along the way. If you're going to be right with God, if you're going to have your relationship restored with God, you must be born again. It's not a matter of keeping some New Year's resolutions. It's not a matter of trying to behave your best. You have to have this complete new start. There's clarity, but even when Jesus gives clarity, there's confusion on the part of Nicodemus, where he's saying, how can these things be? He's wrestling through this, and I I wonder if what he's wrestling through is, and the the question never is explicitly said this way, but I wonder if what he's wrestling through is, how do you get yourself born again? I know it's an odd question, but how does that exactly happen? So if only God can do this, and it's not going to be our own effort, then, then is there a role that we have? Is there a responsibility we have? Is there anything we do to get ourselves born again if there's a requirement that we must be? I want to answer that question, but I want to do something a little bit different than what we normally do in this time where I teach. So if you followed or I should say at least attempted to follow uh, sermons of mine in the past. A lot of times what what we try to do, and and most people do this in teaching, preaching the Bible, 
there's points and then there's sometimes subpoints and some illustrations of those points and kind of that helps you follow. And for a lot of texts in the Bible, it's a really good way of understanding what's going on, kind of laying out main points. Here though, in this conversation, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I'd rather track, I'd rather track with the conversation. I'd rather go verse by verse, even phrase by phrase, even word by word, and not necessarily kind of try to go to the the main points, but really let's keep our ears open to exactly what the conversation is, exactly what Jesus is saying. And I think by doing that, by slowing it down, we're going to understand. I, I think it's critical we do understand because all of Scripture matters, all of it's important. And yet when you come to something like John 3, it's especially important that we understand exactly what Jesus is teaching. And we have to think about it. I, I, I know you know this, but when we have the Bible, what the Bible teaches is not, it's not just like a show on Disney Junior, where in about 22 minutes, the moral of the story is going to be very, very clear to anybody watching, even a two-year-old. When we get into scripture, there is a place where it's actually, it's simple and it's straightforward, but there's also places where we have to think, we have to work hard to understand, and Jesus will not insult your intelligence. He'll actually walk you through what he is saying in helping us understand. So this is an informative conversation, but much more than that, it's, I think it's transformational if we really grasp what Jesus says. So we're, we're kind of on the heels of Nicodemus asking a question, how can all of what you're talking about be true? And Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus answers him. I, I hope you have your Bibles open, but if not, please follow on the screens. Verse 10, Jesus answered him saying, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Jesus senses Nicodemus is not picking things up. And I wonder if a paraphrase might be this. I, Nicodemus, I can't believe you aren't getting this. What I am telling you shouldn't be a stretch for you, you of all people, to grasp because you're a prominent teacher in Israel. So when I talk about the mysteriousness of God's ways, you should know this. When I talk about the need for God to do something that we can't do on our own, you of all people should understand this. When I talk about being cleansed on the inside, you should get this. You should be ready to hear this. When we're talking about being renewed and restored, and how are you not understanding this? I think what Jesus is saying is the first two-thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament as we call it, all of that was setting the table so that people like Nicodemus could read that and understand and process exactly what was going on. Jesus didn't come in a vacuum, and Nicodemus should have been picking up exactly what's going on. He should understand, but he's not. And so verse 11, why isn't he? What change needs to happen for him to pick up exactly what Jesus is talking about? Jesus says this, truly, truly. In the original, it's, it's like, amen, amen, or listen carefully to this. This is very true. I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen but you don't receive our testimony. Again, a, a, a paraphrase, a, another way of looking and understanding this. is Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something very, very important, Nicodemus. The issue isn't really about you not understanding what I'm talking about. That's not the issue here. When we speak, we talk about what we know. 
When, when we are, are giving testimony, it's something that we've seen. There's evidence, Nicodemus. There's evidence. You've seen it. The big problem is that you just don't want to receive it. And when he says, you will not receive it, he's actually saying, all of you. You're not receiving. It, it's not a matter of evidence before you in which you go, I, I, I just, I don't understand. Not here, Nicodemus. That's a very interesting, interesting angle that people will not receive what they are understanding and comprehending. It should make us realize that as we try to share the gospel, so we try to share good news, and we sang about it a moment ago, just the amazing love of God. That what's required for people to believe sometimes is not a presentation with just this airtight logic that if we got it all together and we presented it just with the facts, just in order, and we said everything right, then all of a sudden someone's going to go, oh, well, your airtight logic is so compelling. Of course I'll believe. Maybe that happens for some. But for many, it's not, it's not an understanding of like one more piece of information. It gets down to a heart level that a lot is on the line for us to believe this. A lot is on the line for us to receive this as truth. I, I think we, sh- we, we should recognize that when it comes to believing in Jesus, it is faith, but it's not like a blind leap of faith. So there's evidence that there really was a man named Jesus. There's evidence of what he taught. There's evidence that after he was crucified, three days later, he rose from the dead. There's evidence of that. And yet the question here is, are you going to receive that testimony? Okay, you, you understand it. Will you receive it? Will you accept it? You're going to have to go to a place in your heart and determine, all of us will, whether we believe that. There's another follow-up question Jesus asks in verse 12. He says in verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, well, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If I've told you earthly things, if we've talked about wind and even birth and compared that spiritually speaking if we've talked about water, if we've talked about all these earthly things, there isn't much likelihood that your faith is going further or deeper if I begin talking about heavenly things, because you're not receiving the earthly things that I'm talking about. I'm giving you apparent analogies, and you're saying, I don't, I don't know that I'm buying into that. How do we talk about the kingdom of God? How do we talk about the Son of Man? Jesus is saying, there are people that do believe and people that don't believe. There are people that do accept, people that don't accept. And he makes distinctions and he calls out differences. We talked last week that there are spiritual requirements to live right inside, to have a right relationship with God, to be assured of eternal life. And one of those was that you must be born again, but Jesus is going to add to that in this conversation. There's another spiritual requirement, and that is believe in Jesus Christ. So if the first part, this is what only God can do, only God can cause us to be born again. And we say, what is my role? What is our role? The second spiritual requirement says you must believe in Jesus. But what do we believe about Jesus? So I'd imagine lots of people believe that Jesus existed. I would believe, you know, probably lots of people think he was a very important person. 
He was a very impressive person. He's a great moral example. The world would be a better place if people were more like Jesus. I'm sure lots of people believe that. But is there something else that we must believe? Let's keep reading because Jesus is actually going to tell us these heavenly things. He said, Nicodemus, you're not hearing the earthly things. I'm not sure you're going to process heavenly things, but here goes. And then he takes them into the heavenly things. Look at at verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus says, let me make some connections for you. Let's talk about heavenly things. The only one who has ever gone up to heaven and the only one who has like heavenly insight, the only one who can actually, from the vantage point of heaven, not just the vantage point of earth, but the vantage point of eternity and the vantage point of knowing what's going on in this whole galaxy and even galaxies beyond that, the only person who can give you information and insight into heavenly realities is the one who's come from heaven. And Jesus, we're already told who that is. Because John 1.14 says, the word, this one who has existed in eternity past, in heaven, became flesh, descended to this earth. He's the access point. He's the link. There's only one link to heaven, and it's the exact one who's from heaven in the first place. He came from heaven with a, with a commission from God sent from the Father. And Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am the Son of Man. He had already, we're already told in John 1 that he's that ladder that connects heaven to earth. That's not our good deeds. It's Jesus Christ and him alone. He's the only authorized route. The only way you're getting to heaven is by Jesus. As a matter of fact, I love the way this this quote kind of pulls it all together, says this, uh, the space between God and human beings is filled by one person exclusively. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, and the one and only Son of God, the sole mediator between God and human beings. It would be very, very arrogant if I said, for all seven billion people in the world, the access point for you to get to heaven is me. I'm the, I'm the one. Or if you were to say that about yourself, you'd be horribly mistaken and it would come off as terribly arrogant for you to say you're the access point. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's the only link between heaven and earth. He's the only route to the presence of God. Let's keep reading in. These are things that we must believe about Jesus. In verse 14, Jesus gives this analogy. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what, what do we need to know about this Son of Man, who's the access point, between God and, God and man. What do we need to know? What, what, do we do as, what do we do with him as the one commissioned to be the, the point person between heaven and earth? And Jesus says, you can, you can ha- here's an analogy that will help you understand this. And so he goes back into, really, it's an obscure story. 
in Numbers chapter 21. And there's only like five or six verses about this. And the story is one where Israel is come out of Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness. And God is graciously giving them food to eat all the time. And they decide they don't like the food he's given them. And so they complain. And they complain some more. And they rebel against God. They get frustrated with their leaders, Moses. And God sends judgment to them. And it's in the form of a poisonous snake. And then the judgment and discipline of God comes for the people's rebellion. And it's just like a plague. I mean, it, it is awful. And, and people are losing their life in this discipline of God. And then God makes this gracious provision. And it's a kind of a, an odd provision. It's n- never before, never after. Where he tells Moses, hoist a pole up and put a bronze snake on that pole. And when people look to that pole in faith, they won't die. They will live. The judgment will be over for them, and they will be given mercy and be spared. And what Jesus does is he goes back to that analogy and brings that into exactly what he's talking about. And he says, just as that pole had to be lifted up with that serpent, and just as what was looked at at first as the curse with that snake, actually, which became the cure. So the Son of Man has to be lifted up. And normally when someone's lifted up, it's like everybody is praising them. That's the way the word is normally used. But there's a play on words because physically Jesus knew he would be lifted up as well on a cross. And he says, just as the Israelites looked to that pole and lived, those who understand what that cross means and look to the Son of Man who is on that cross just as that happened, then that person will live. That person will have eternal life. What everybody was looking at when Jesus was lifted up is like the most humiliating thing that could happen to any human being. Actually, is Jesus being lifted up and it begins the glorification of Jesus Christ where we celebrate that, we sing about that, because we know if he wasn't lifted up, we don't, we don't receive eternal life. And eternal life here is not just about, oh, you get to go to heaven when you die. Eternal life here is not just a matter of even quantity, like forever and ever and ever. It's quality, and it's not just something in the future. It's something in the present. You possess it. You have it right now. You have eternal life. You have life beginning right now, and that is deep and lasting life, and it will never end. Don't miss what he's saying. Jesus is not just the sole access between God and us, between heaven and earth. He's also the one lifted up in our place for our sins so we might look and believe. That's the backdrop. All that's the backdrop for probably the most famous verse in the Bible. And it's justifiably the most famous verse in the Bible. And that's John 3.16. Can I read it for us again? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. I don't know when I first heard that verse. It's probably before I could talk. And there's something I appreciated about that verse. I always have. And there's something about all these years later hearing that verse still makes me just overwhelmed with gratitude. 
I remember doing a craft in Vacation Bible School or Children's Church where you fill in the blanks for God so loved and the blank was, and you'd write in your own name. And I think it's a helpful exercise. But then as you grow up, you realize, yeah, and it wasn't just me. But I'm looking at people that God loves so much. Let's take this in. This was the plan of God all along. God the Father loves this world in such an intense way that he is going to demonstrate his love for the world in that he gives his one and only son. He sends them to the world. And God's love then means there is an open invitation to every single individual, whoever believes. So no one's getting excluded here. Whoever believes in this, whoever depends on God's son, whoever rests in Jesus entrusting their lives to him, He's the access point. He's the one who's been lifted up for us. That person will never be destroyed. That person will never perish. Not now, not ever. They will never have their life end in ruin. But they will enjoy even now and forever and ever and ever deep and lasting life. So I think, I think of the person that, think of the single mom, the single dad that is, just like struggling. I think of what this verse always means to that person is that God loves. I think about the person that we'll, we'll all leave here and, and imagine that person going home to a very lonely environment, a lonely house. They live all alone. This is the height of social interaction they may enjoy this week. And I think for them, we hear this verse, God loves you and you will not, you will not perish. I think of the person that's just grown cynical of it all. You've seen so much. You've seen stuff like mess at church and you've seen mess in your own life and you grow cynical. And, and even here, God loves the world. And he sent Jesus Christ, the person that got the best news this week they could possibly get. God loves you. If you're not a Christian, I think I'd be at the front of the line admitting. I, I would admit Christians are far from perfect. Too often we're hypocritical. And yet I do have to say this is at the core of Christianity. The fact that God who made everything loves us, loves the world, loves you. And he demonstrated that love. You kind of always wonder, okay, that's good news. I just kind of, do we just like close the Bible right there because is there a catch? Is there a hitch? Is there something, like is there a dark side to all this good news? There's something else that, like, we don't want that coming out because then that kind of taints. And I'd say, with Scripture, you, you keep reading. We're not trying to hide anything. So, John three seventeen, For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the intention of God in sending his Son into the world was never just for the purposes of condemnation. The intention was to provide salvation and rescue to the world. And the only way the world will ever be rescued, ever be saved, the only way you will be rescued, the only way I will be rescued, is through Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing that God's intention all along was not just like, I'm going to come into this world, and I'm going to show you just how disgusted I am with how much of a mess you've made of this world. Think how different God the Father is than I am sometimes as a father. So sometimes when I know my kids aren't doing exactly what I, I told them to do, what I want them to do, I hear them like, 
down in the basement and they're not exactly cleaning it up, right? Or I hear them up in the room and they have specific instructions and they're not following those. So I will go and I'd like to tell you I'm like this gracious father. In that moment, what I'm trying to communicate with my body language and with everything is I'm disgusted. How could you? You, you, how could you? You knew what to do and you didn't. And I come into their room and I just want them to know. I, I don't even want to say anything. I want them to know I'm just not happy. Yeah, that is not, that is not how God enters our world. Disgusted with everything. God enters our world, not for the purposes of condemnation, but to save and to rescue. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that we can be rescued. He will save. He will take lives that even in January 2019 are just totally messed up. And he will rescue them. He will save them. For for some of us who believed at a very early age, he will take our lives and he will rescue and save us and spare us a thousand tragedies a life that just ended in nowhere. He will spare us that because that was always his intention to rescue and to save. So where does, I mean, Jesus mentioned condemnation. Where does that fit in? What what about sin? What about the wrath of God? What about everything that's wrong in the world? What about the people who don't believe in Jesus and don't receive his message? Well, again, we, we keep reading. Look at verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, condemnation never comes to those who are entrusting themselves to Jesus. No guilt in life, no fear in death. But if a person doesn't entrust himself, herself to Jesus, you stand condemned. And the reason you already are condemned is that you've not believed in Jesus, who's the only access to God, the rescue agent sent from heaven. You're not going to self-rescue you're not going to earn God's love. It doesn't work like that. But at the same time, we can't like think we're in neutral. He says, no, no, you're condemned already. You're condemned already because Jesus has come. There has to be a decision on our part to believe in who Jesus is. We can't just like sit this out and hope for the best someday. It, it, If you think you're just going to sit it out, actually your default setting is one of under condemnation already. The only rescue out of that is Jesus Christ, placing your hope in him. That's the only only path. And I I don't think I'd be a good pastor, a good preacher, good speaker this morning if I didn't plead with those who have yet to trust in Jesus. Plead with you to, to trust him, to put your faith in him, To not make excuses. Not let, like, well, I've got uh, some doubts. Well, yeah, take those doubts. Let's talk about those doubts. But don't let that keep you from placing your life into the hands of Jesus Christ. Lots of people have the impression that Jesus only talked about love, and he talked about love a lot. So I understand why that might be a dominant impression of Jesus. But here he's talking about another side of this. And that is condemnation. In verse 19, it says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people, people love darkness rather than the light. Their works were evil and everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest 
his work should be exposed. The nature and basis of condemnation of that judgment is light has come. Jesus is that light of the world. And humans didn't treasure it. They treasured darkness instead. How they acted, what they loved, what they really wanted. It wasn't filled with the light that Jesus brought. And so is darkness. And if a person is living a dark life, they don't want any exposure to the light. They can't stand the light. They don't want that. You don't want to be near it because you don't want the light to expose who you are and what you're doing. You want to resist this exposure. I don't think Jesus is saying that anybody who's not a Christian is like the worst person imaginable. He's actually talking to Nicodemus, who's, by all accounts, a pretty good person. What he's saying is there, there are things in our human heart that are dark. There's selfishness, there's pride, there's envy, there's greed, there's lust, there's materialism, there's anger, there's bitterness. And there's something in our heart that says, I don't, I don't know that I want to go to the light. I don't know that I want to be exposed by Jesus Christ. So I'd rather just kind of work on my own plan, my own way. I don't think I'm good to trust myself to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to run the opposite direction. Jesus paints one more picture describing what it looks like when people actually do follow him. He says in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Notice what a, what a contrast. The person who's living out the truth, the person that's living in reality, your life is lining up with the truth. You're actually, you want the light. You come near to the light because you know even in the light, what's going to shine is not how good you are, but that it was a work of God all along. That, w- that was a, in play here. If it wasn't God working, you, you would still be in darkness. And so when, when you're going to the light, you say, I, I can be exposed. I, I don't have to deny whether I've ever sinned. I can confess my sin. I can bring that into the light because I know it's always God's work from start to finish. It was always about him. Only God could make this happen. The conversation seems to end We're not even told what happened to Nicodemus that evening. My guess is that may have not been the best night of sleep Nicodemus had ever had as he walked away from that. There are conversations you have that like make you think and sometimes even day, week later, you're still still wrestling through it. I think this might have been one that Nicodemus was really wrestling through. It had to feel real personal for him, for Jesus to just lay out the truth. And what I have prayed for all week is that it's just as personal to us in this room today. I know I'm speaking to a number of people, but I, I pray that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And it's personal as if Jesus Christ is one-to-one with you. And my guess is that, that Nicodemus had to wrestle through some really, really important questions. Some questions that I think we can come back to again and again. And I actually want to lay those questions out for you because I think every person in the room needs to wrestle with these questions today. So one of those questions would be this. Do I believe, do I believe that Jesus alone gives access to God and rescues my life? Do I believe that? Am I trusting in Jesus being the one who came down from heaven, the one who was lifted up. And if I believe in him, I don't, do I believe that? 
And that gets into that second question, right? Have I believed in Jesus Christ as my Savior and received life from him? I can't answer those questions for you. No one can answer those questions for you. You have to answer those questions for yourself. Is that what you're resting on? And I want to give us a a little bit of space for you to think through those questions, but but this is what I would ask. If your answer to those questions is like, no, I actually don't. Or I haven't yet believed that. Or if you say, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Then over the next few moments, what I'd like for you to do is think through what does my next step need to be in light of that? Is it to pray to the Lord and say, I believe, help my unbelief? Is it to, like immediately following this service, talk to someone, talk to, talk to me, talk to a, a person that brought you? What is your next step if you're not sure? What is that going to be? If you're uncertain of exactly how to answer that question, so let me, let me do this. Let me ask us to bow our head. And in a moment, we're going to sing. But right now, I just ask you, just you and the Lord, to answer those questions. And then I want to pray for you. And then we'll sing. Our Father, what I'd ask, ask you to give is real clarity right now and also some courage right now for the person who maybe has grown up in church all their life or a person who's kind of dabbled in Christianity. I pray that it would be clear right now exactly what that next step needs to be. I pray that there might be those in this room that you would open their hearts to pay attention to what's being said by Jesus Christ. And they might believe this morning. Father, only you can do this. Only you can work in the heart. Grateful it's not about selling anybody on anything today. So Lord, I pray that there would be a a real movement of your Holy Spirit in this place today. That we would know and be able to answer those questions with, yes, this is what I believe. Yes, this is what I'm trusting. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.